Hi, I'm Meha Rastan. I'm a writer, journalist, and lover of all things cravats and corsets. Welcome to The Discorset, a podcast about period dramas. Each week, I'm joined by a different guest as we discuss a different period drama. So sit back, grab your tea and crumpets, and enjoy the show. This week, we are discussing 2020's Emma, directed by Autumn DeWilde, with a screenplay by Eleanor Catton. And my special guest is Melissa Lee. And Mel is the former head writer and current creative director of Off Colour, which is a platform for empowering people of colour and making our voices mainstream. It's fantastic. So definitely go check that out. And hello to Mel. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm also very excited because for the listeners at home, the, the it was Mel was very much the obvious choice to talk about this film because that's pretty much... <laughs> she never shuts up about it. <laughs> so talking about Emma, how familiar were you with the Emma extended universe before seeing this film? The where, where were PCU, you? The ECU, yes. the Emma Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Okay. I, okay, honestly, when I first saw the trailer, I was like, why do we need another Emma? <laughs> because <laughs> there are already like 12 or so I thought, but then I went back and did some research and there are not actually that many. It's mm. just that they kind of came out at like unfortunate times. Like two of them came out in the same year. What, yeah, what is, that? what is that about? Like, guys, <laughs> can we compare notes at our meetings? Like, <laughs> then I was like, wait, Anya Taylor Joy's in this? Hang on. And then, wait, Johnny Flynn? Is- <laughs> wait, 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 back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up right now. Like, Johnny <laughs> Flynn. I, okay, I know there's like a discourse on whether he's hot or not. <laughs> I'm going to conclude right now before the discussion even begins that he is hot. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're going in with a strong thesis statement and honestly, I'm right there with you and I think we will we will prove it as we go. To segue into the question of adapting books and adapting Austin and adapting Emma specifically and how this film does it because I think there's a lot to discuss here which is very interesting yeah there's there's a a lot lot to to go into so yeah like I mentioned the screenwriter is Eleanor Catton who's I believe the a national hero yeah a national hero first of all first of all yeah yeah. oh yeah yeah for many reasons which we will go into we owe her so much (laughs) but I think I want to say she won the man booker for the luminaries um, which was her big debut novel. And this was her first screenplay, I believe, Emma. And she had not read it before she was approached to write the screenplay. So What? Okay, I didn't yeah, know that. <laughs> I read this in an interview and I was surprised. That is so what like just reading the script, it is so faithful to like the original novel that this is I would thing. never have believed that this writer did not read the novel yeah. before. <laughs> what? I was stunned to discover this. So I'm assuming she, I think she she read it after she was approached, obviously, but it reads like someone who knows this text really well. And it reads like someone who was like born breathing and eating <laughs> yes. and sleeping. This, that that yeah. is ridiculous. And, Come on. Yeah. So this is insane to me. And I have been thinking about this a lot about like what makes a good adaptation? Because I think there's always such an emotional reaction to like page to screen adaptations so it was like what makes it good 
Yeah, and, I mean, there yeah. is a double-edged thing where people are like, if it is like completely faithful and like just replicates everything you see on the page, people complain because they're like, right. oh, this isn't creative, this isn't unique. But when you don't do that and you come up with your own direction, people complain too because they're like, this isn't what I know. Like you know? Exactly. It's, it's hard to do. And I think that's why like people are so on it. Every time an adaptation is introduced, you get this thing where it's like everyone's like making those Netflix edits of your favorite book as a Netflix series. And then if it's ever announced, it's the end of the world has arrived because everyone is like, oh my God, this is going to be awful. So I think for me, an adaptation has to like walk a very fine line between, I, I feel like there needs to be a reason for adapting it beyond there just, does, just there flipping does. it. Because I think there needs to be this understanding that A, like film and books are like different mediums. So they have like different stuff going into it. But also I think mm. when you write an adaptation, it can't just be like just doing whatever. It needs to engage with the text. So I'm not so concerned with it like replicating the text on screen but I need there to be a reason for what it does. And that's where I think Eleanor Casson does a really good job because on the whole, very faithful to the plot of the book. It's pretty much beat for beat the plot, but whether a change is made, you notice the changes after you read the book And again. they matter. And, and they, they do are, matter. Yeah. So this, the first, the one I want to talk about is you pointed this one out and I didn't realize I had to like go and like check my copy of Emma afterwards because again it's written so naturally that it feels like this should have happened in the book and they're like oh but it didn't and so there's this insane <laughs> insane scene where I, I want to come back to the sequence in detail later but it's basically after Harriet's been attacked and she's sort of screaming and moaning everywhere and there's all this <laughs> chaos as they're bringing her in and it's Mr. Churchill, Frank Churchill and Emma and Knightley and they're all kind of suddenly interrupting these heated moments so they can attend to her. And it culminates in this the moment when, when Knightley believes Emma has sort of rejected him for Frank Churchill, essentially. And it's a <laughs> sort of dramatic scene of Johnny Flynn like collapsing to the floor by himself. <laughs> and it's, it's not Knightley in that is scene. destroyed. Knightley is destroyed in the score for that scene. And he's not in that scene in the book and I I was stunned because it felt so natural the way it was built in and I, I was reading was very I was cool. reading the book a few weeks ago actually I was rereading the book and it actually like dawned on me that I totally did not notice that Nightly was not even in the scene the first time I read the book oh yeah like, because it was it was so natural like watching it on the screen like yeah yeah, yeah he's there you know he, he's reacting he's getting jealous over like Churchill and Emma and only rereading it like a few weeks ago I was like wait he was never here <laughs> <laughs> it almost felt like it would have been weirder to stick to the novel and not have him there because I think what's really interesting about this adaptation and what really stands out from some of the other Emma adaptations is it's a very energetic film mm. it's very high energy and even though it it does maintain this sense of like it's all in this one village in Emma's little world and everything happens within the confines of this village everything about it feels very kind of energetic and quite fresh and that scene does a really good job of, I think, taking like what's already probably the emotional high point of the film and then just pushing it even more and more mm. and more until we get nightly is destroyed. I think it's that thing where we did talk about this before briefly, but like it's that thing about how the movie Emma 2020, it feels like 
a modern rom-com. It doesn't yeah. feel like you're watching a period piece because the rhythm and the pacing and like the way the characters shift dynamics so quickly, like it feels like a modern rom-com. This yes. could be happening for like a modern audience, for like modern characters, like in and a modern city. I think, yeah, I, I agree. And I was like, that's what it, it was like. If it's similar to any previous Emma adaptation, it's definitely clueless because it has this modernity to it. And I think mm. a big part of that Obviously the writing, but I think the casting is in and of itself a really interesting discussion. So we already kind of started talking about <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn. But again, so Anya Taylor-Joy, I think, I mean, she's got like, she's got, I think some actors and actresses have what I, I'd say is like the kind of vintage face where like they suit period drama. So obviously mm. like <laughs> Kira Knightley. Yeah, like, so, like, Kira Knightley has built her career on this, right? And just she just kind of looks like she's walked out of a sort of, I don't know, like, Renaissance painting and is just kind of, like, swanning about doing that. And, like, good for her. And Anya Taylor-Joy... Good for her, good for her. Yeah, yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy also does. But what I was thinking about this when I watched The Queen's Gambit, and I'm like, she looks like she's a sort of very vintage face, but vintage from, like, the 60s, or, like, the 50s to the 60s. So she inherently feels quite modern, but she fits like the Emma role really well. And I, I think, think it big... was really interesting that they cast her because there are a lot of references made to Emma's eyes and like her mm. gaze in the novel. And honestly, like as much as I did enjoy Ramona Garai and even Kate Beckinsale, like she was delightful. Yeah. As much as I enjoyed the previous Emmas, like none of them had that. Like, as Frank Churchill says, your penetrating eyes, they didn't have that. When you oh, look absolutely. at them or when they look at a character, you don't feel that same energy of like, I am grabbing you with <laughs> nothing but my gaze and you are within yeah, Like, because, you don't feel that. Yeah, and again, Anya Taylor's Joy's eyes are like her most prominent feature like it's it's like if, again she has if you a watch, good gaze she exactly, has an excellent gaze like her entire yes. performance in the queen's gambit was based around her ability to like stare men stare down. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and i think it's a really interesting addition to emma because i think it comes back to like can it capture the meanness of the of the book and i think <laughs> yeah and i'm like Ramona Gairai, like, she just inherently seems like quite a nice person. So I feel like a lot of the more traditional Emma adaptations, they kind of just go along with the, oh, she's a bit flighty and she's a little bit, she's a little bit of a, of a snob, but oh, inherently, mm. like, it's all fine. I think the Clueless version does it quite interesting because it sets it in this sort of, like, Los Angeles world. So they make it a lot about this kind of shallowness and wealth which works quite well but with her I think Anya Taylor-Joy she is able to kind of be almost intimidating in a way like she she can kind of make you feel like she's the mean girl which a lot of people probably wouldn't want to do if they're like leading mm. an Austin adaptation like they I think the instinct is to be very I think people think Austin heroin likable yeah they immediately want to be Lizzie Bennett reading a book walking through a field everybody loves me yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Whereas Emma is kind of a bitch, like a lot of the book. And it's important, it's important that she is a bitch and that Anya Taylor-Joy enjoys that she's a bitch. Yes. Like, it, it shows yes. in her performance, like she's really relishing every like, you know, cock of the eyebrow, every like tiny yes. smirk, every I think, like, it's delicious. Yeah. I think one of my favorite little nuggets of performance is after she and Knightley have this big blowout argument about her interfering in Harriet's love life. And she's asking if, <laughs> if someone is really heartbroken because of her. 
And, you know, Johnny Flynn is like, yeah, I've never seen a man like more disappointed. And we get this sort of shot of her like slight shaken, regretful face. And it just holds on her. And you think that it's going to be like, oh, you know, she's a, she's really soft inside. And then she just literally just shrugs and moves on. It's a visual like, <laughs> and it's so good. It's so it's good. So good. It's so good, especially because of the contrast. Okay, again, we're coming back to like the genius subvertive casting of Johnny Flynn, but it's such oh, a contrast yes. because Anya Taylor-Joy, I think she does a very good structured performance. There's a very like calculated intentionality behind her choices and it works for Emma. Like it really does work. And for Johnny Flynn, even if you watch him in other projects, he manages to pull off this like oh I'm not even like reading a line I memorized like this is just something I came up with on the spot he has that ability to look like he's not acting like it's all coming from yeah there's a very organic nature to his performance which you you believe what he's saying even if he's not conventionally I don't know structured (laughs) jawline yeah on this note Johnny Flynn so nightly in the pantheon of of Austin heroines, like the big three of Austin, like love interests, obviously Darcy, Knightley, and Wentworth, a big three. And I think on film, Wentworth probably the hardest to pull off because you don't mm. get much from him in Persuasion. You get the letter and it's explosive, this letter. It's definitely one of the best like romance set pieces in Austin, but like it's hard to pull off. Darcy and Knightley, probably more cinematic, in my opinion, because, I mean, they're around a bit more. Darcy, I think, has been done so many times now and in such iconic ways. Because, again, Colin Firth as Darcy is probably one of the best-known period drama mm. things. He's sort of like, it's sort of, that in and of itself is like an artifact of performance in Britain. Like, it's a thing. And But with Knightley, I think if there's any Austin hero who, like, rivals Darcy's popularity, especially among Jane Austen fans, it's Knightley. There's a big fan base for this. And, and it's I- such a shame because, in my opinion, I don't think he's ever been done justice until now. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, okay, I have a soft spot for Paul Rudd, but I don't think that is trying to pull off Knightley in the book. I think it's trying to do, you know... A character for Clueless and I think it works but I don't think you watch him and you're getting the nightly Jane Austen wrote and I don't think it's what yeah. it's trying to do the other versions I think it's just it just doesn't hit like the Romola Garrow version Johnny Lee Miller is nightly I really like Johnny Lee Miller but it's I just I don't like, think it was his role no it's, he's it, good but not for nightly no it didn't work for me because he's a very He's a very attractive character, but he's also one that's so easy to make deeply off-putting because I think he had, I don't know, like for me with Ramallah Garai and Johnny Lee Miller, it was too much dead energy. Yeah. Oh, no. I don't know if that makes sense. I know exactly what you mean because I remember watching their, their like the famous sort of nightly attempting to propose and Emma thinking it's going some other direction. And it, if it's not crackling with chemistry and tension and you're not foaming at the mouth waiting for it to like waiting for them to like get there it's just quite awkward to watch and I'm kind of just sort of like kind of like scratching my head being like well this is uncomfortable like I I don't know where this is going it's not that they're I don't know I just don't think they had that chemistry with each other I think unfortunately I think that it it felt too much like he was just sort of a, a nice family friend that yes. hung around a lot. Yes. It didn't. It, it really didn't get the energy needed to. And then 
I don't know, obviously, much about how it went in Gwyneth Paltrow's, Paltrow's version. I know Jeremy Northam played Knightley, which I'm sure was, like, nice to look at, but I um... have a hunch. I have a hunch <laughs> that, that there's other aspects to the Knightley I... character. I don't think, I mean, okay, I think we did talk about this before, but Johnny yeah. Flynn's Knightley would fully beat up Jeremy Northam's Knightley. <laughs> like, like, there is no competition. Johnny Flynn's Knightley would, like, shove him into a locker, knee him in the balls. And, <laughs> it's just, I don't know if Jeremy Northam did read the script or if he was, I don't know, misdirected or something, but he had a very overly authoritative, it was impositional. Like, he was always trying to impose control. On, oh god, on yeah. Emma, which is not what Johnny Flynn's Knightley is trying to do. Like Johnny no. Flynn's Knightley, um, I think we did talk about this before too, but it comes from a place of such sincerity, which plays into mm. you know his organic performance, as we said, that you genuinely believe like he's only doing this because he knows Emma is capable of better, doing better, being better. Yeah. If he didn't, he wouldn't say anything, you know? He's not doing it to, like, put yeah. her in place and, or whatever. You know, credit where credit's due, I think that's something Johnny Flynn definitely brings out of the character, because reading Knightley, like I said, because they have, like, the most page time, you actually, like, get to know him and get to know their relationship in the book a lot better than some of the others, and they have a really nice dynamic, and he's actually, like, very romantic, but there's there's a quality to Knightley and their dynamic, and the the obvious part is the weird age gap. Like I don't believe in like overly overly morally critiquing Austin relationships because I'm like you know it's the Regency. Like okay, there's no point in sitting there like picking apart the morals of yeah. people 250 years ago. The the issue with with Emma and Knightley is that there's certain things you know the weird like historical marriage practices. I think people can kind of just let go of you can kind of suspend your disbelief it's it's there's there's like lines in emma where it's all going well and it's really romantic and then suddenly he'll be like yeah i remember holding you in your arms when you were a baby and then it's like well which is a line that mark strong (laughs) said in the kate beckinsale emma oh my god i was horrified i was like what it was i don't know it was during the proposal scene and he said it and i was like why would you remind us all (laughs) this is the thing it's one of those there's certain elements and i'm like that's the most obvious one which is like and this isn't me. I'm like, I, I've read so much weird shit in fiction at this point. Like once you've, <laughs> once you've studied like gothic in depth, I don't think anything can fade you. But even this, if, if it comes up completely unedited from the source material, I'm still kind of like, uh, no. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. And then the other stuff, which is less like overtly offensive, but I think it's the kind of stuff that it's, it's too close to something that could potentially happen in the modern day. And I think that's why it's so off-putting is that this dynamic Emma and Knightley have which is in the book, it's a lot of Emma doing her thing and Knightley being like, basically, ho, don't do it. Like, this is a bad (laughs) idea. And Emma being like, well, I did it. And then him sort of facepalming. That can come across as just him negging so easily. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's too close to home, like just having this dude just constantly like negging and negging and negging. And I think that can happen really easily in Austin adaptations. That's one of the other things that didn't work for me with the Ramona Garay, Johnny Lee Miller yes. one. Was like, yes. he, just, he just kind of felt like a neg. He felt like... It, someone... was, it was pretty neggy. It was. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's not even that he's wrong. 
Although we can kind of talk about what Knightley preaches versus what Emma does in the book versus in the film later. But like, it's not even that he's wrong. It's just like, no, this, like, no girl wants this as like her romantic conclusion. Yeah. It's just being like I, negged into, into romance. So I think, I think this is the thing yeah. that hits for Emma 2020 that doesn't for the previous ones. Not the same way, I guess. Like when we were talking about like what makes a good adaptation, like what makes a faithful adaptation, like... It really just does come... I, I'm sorry, this is not the most academic answer, <laughs> but like, it really does come down to vibes. I, no, I Do agree. you capture the vibe of the original text? Are you engaging with the text this is the in thing. its vibes, you know? Exactly. And, which is exactly what Eleanor Catton's screenplay does and Autumn DeWald's direction. Like, just... It's that, it's that small thing that brings Emma <laughs> and Knightley's argument scenes from negging to like a genuine debate and dialogue between two equals. Absolutely. And I think, it, yeah, you're right. It definitely comes down to the goal of a good adaptation shouldn't be to replicate what's on the page because that's how you end up with stuff that was probably completely innocuous when Jane Austen wrote mm, it. To, to yeah. Just, that can just completely, like, completely take you like, out of it. totally incongruous too because yeah. it's written for different mediums. Um, it's, it's one of the things that frustrates you about, the most about people discussing like adaptation about like what's accurate and stuff is like it shouldn't be accurate to what's on the page it should be accurate I guess if you're trying to be accurate to what the author what effect the author was trying to have on the audience and it's like I don't think if Jane Austen was writing now she would be writing someone who was like I don't know like (laughs) 21 years old when you had three yeah (laughs) like I I don't think that because that creates a very distinct impression that I really don't think is what she was going for and the way the film addresses that age gap is to just not bring it up, which I think is is a completely fine way to do it. It's it, it's I get the impression that like he's clearly the older of the two, but they don't make this big deal about how he's he's like senior and she's yeah. the kid. Like yeah, I think it's not an imbalanced dynamic no, in that they, sense. Like there's no there's no level differential. They are different in different ways and they have like different strengths and they pick on each other's like weaknesses absolutely. in different areas, but it's yeah. definitely not a power imbalance. I think it really, yeah, it goes for me a power imbalance where a lot of other adaptations will just have it being like Emma trying to do her thing and then nightly like following her and like nagging her. Whereas this one <laughs> kind of creates, you get the sense that these are like two very close friends who argue about everything and their fight scenes are like, some of the best in the movie for me like chemistry wise because the scene after they uh the the first big argument they have is after he realizes that Emma told Harriet to reject Robert Martin and it doesn't waste time trying to like oh this is the dialogue Austin used and 10 points you can like recognize each line of the book it's them I think okay there was there was an excellent choice in that too in Eleanor Kent's screenplay where that scene in the book it begins with Knightley coming up to Emma and being like "Ooh, I have news guess what oh, you know like he's like he's like all smug and like yeah I did this thing like I watched it happen and she's like you know what no I'm gonna tell you something like <laughs> Harriet refused Barbara Martin surprise so like that's oh. how it begins which inherently sets up that you know like trying to one-up each other vibe which I don't think would have translated well on film like in the book it does get across because it is a book you know you're leading up to something but on film every second does count every second does count to something every visual image you give the audience does count to something and it would have contributed too much to a yeah I'm trying to like get a one-up on you specifically Mm. yeah again it's very sort of like kind of antagonistic neggy 
thing. I keep saying yeah. maybe, but that's what what comes to mind. <laughs> and I think the other the other aspect I really enjoyed, and I think this it's a very small change, but it really helped establish a dynamic. Was all the like party scenes? Yeah. There was a kind of magnetic draw between them when, even though it was often to argue, it was usually to argue or to like rib each other. They just kind of gravitate towards each other. Like, even if it was to be like, well, you were wrong about that. It's, <laughs> it's never lecturing. It's them kind of finding each other in a corner and going at it again. And I think it's so clever because I think that's a dynamic you can relate to. Like everyone has those family friends where you're like at the big family gathering and, you know, you're like waiting for them to show up. And yeah, then you go or like, the if they're not coming, I'm going to be bored the whole night. Exactly. Which is Which exactly is what, what happens is. in the first one. In the first yeah. scene where Emma's without Knightley and she's looking around at everybody, like, you know, chatting over the table. And she's just like, yeah, I'm bored. Yeah, she's <laughs> like not interested. She doesn't care about anyone else. And then even when they're in the middle of this huge argument, it's when the, I think this is another really good change, is in the book when Emma's sister and Knightley's brother, who are married, turn up. It's immediately established that Knightley is like the elder brother, which kind of just makes the age difference even weirder because <laughs> Emma's elder sister is married to Knightley's younger brother, which again is one of those things that just gets weird in the modern day. But in the book, they kind of don't, they never specify that. Again, it's kind of, it's this, this image where there's all the chaos of that, the whole family, like the, the married couple and their kids and Emma's dad are all so chaotic. And then Emma and Knightley have this rapport in the back, which is them kind of like exchanging the knowing glances and like rolling their eyes. And it's like, it, it's really simple, but it creates this really natural, you believe them as like best friends or as like very close family friends rather than as like the weird paternalistic thing that can come across when I think other adaptations take the text too literally and then miss the point. Which yeah, is yeah, yeah. There is well. like a partnership, like a very evident partnership like camaraderie like between them especially when they're in a group setting yes I think that is like a pretty strong foundation it makes everything that happens with their dynamic believable like without that underlying partnership like you just feel like you know it gets into that neggy thing again like exactly and I think like the, the climactic scene of the arguments is obviously after Box Hill when he yells at her and I think quite often so all Austin ships, they'll have like the, their like point of no return. And for Emma, I think when it's compared to like, so like Pride and Prejudice, you have this really dramatic rejected proposal and it can seem a bit wet on the page when it's like, oh, and then he like yelled at her for being mean to like an annoying old lady. And it's like, oh, okay. And a lot of adaptations, <laughs> I don't think they kind of get the gravity of it because he's already a neg. So then he just kind of yells at her and you're like, well here he goes again he's already in it literally so it's like what has changed whereas in this you kind of actually get because there's a it feels different to their other Mm. arguments this isn't them debating each other this is like the first time that I think you as an audience member and therefore Emma as a character feel like oh he's he's actually like angry or like angry with me and because it feels so different than the tone that their arguments have had so far, it, you actually feel the depth of it. And I, I think, think there also is yeah. a very smart direction choice of having Emma in the carriage ready to leave and Knightley still on the ground. Like he's still literally standing in the mess she made on Box Hill and he's 
you know, he's going at her because yeah. of it. And she's already removed herself from the situation because that's always been her solution. Like if I ever like, you know, fuck up or like if I ever like am a bit too mean to someone, like I'll just, you know, huh, smile, laugh and leave. Like, yeah, it I never actually like- comes back to her until Knightley is standing still in the middle of it, giving it to her. Exactly. And I think like now you say that, that that's another thing the film really like hashes out of their dynamic, which is it can be really easy again because of the whole negging nightly thing to like it's it's kind of hard to get why he's doing it because it's like is it just because he's like the older like weird quasi uncle figure who's just there to rag on her but in this you you get this sense that he's so you know he loves her but he's so enwrapped in her world that when she creates this kind of explosion he's gonna fix her so he is the one who kind of bears some mm. emotional fallout for her mis- mistakes and I think, yeah. yeah, and I think the kind of, so Emma and Knightley, we're obviously going to keep on discussing because they're very much at the core of this film. But while we're on like <laughs> casting, yeah, I just want to briefly talk about some of the other characters because I think, yeah, yeah. Let's get really... to Harriet, honestly. Let's get yeah. to Harriet. Okay. because I've been waiting the... ever since you yeah. mentioned her with the scissor scene. I, we did talk about how absolutely perfect Mia Goth is for this oh, role. Yeah. It, it, she was born for this. Nobody can take this role from her. Like no. she will die I, with this role yeah. in her hands. Like she so was so on her. There was there, okay, there was so like good. the the bullet pudding scene where you know they were doing like the flour cake in Mrs. Goddard's school and like the coin and all the girls were like cutting into the flour. Yeah. And, like, you know, Harriet had to like stick her nose in. I think that was an excellent, that is not in the novel either. No. That was like an excellent addition because like it was actually a game that Jane Austen used to play with her family. So oh, I didn't know that. That is so Yeah. Cool. So yeah. just to have that in to show like the difference between Harriet and Emma without having to tell the difference. Harriet is just a girl who likes hanging out and having fun and like, you know, like she doesn't really care about like looking proper or like looking like, you know, dignified or whatever. She's like, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's do it. And yeah, Emma and I think walks in on the scene and she's just like, yeah. And it's it was especially like, I don't know, it was a smart choice to have Emma walk in right in the middle of Harriet being like so carefree and just being like, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's, I think it's a lot of the film sort of, both aesthetically and thematically is about sort of Emma has this very, I think it comes back to what you said about Anya Taylor-Joy having this very structured performance, is that Emma has this very kind of manicured, like structured world. And what the film does mm. really well is that it's happy to play within the bounds of that world, but it, it because it's so energetic, it does a really good job at showing how that control breaks away. And I think Harriet is, and like Mia Goth's performance is so good at this. Because in the book and in a lot of adaptations I've seen she can be a bit of a nothingy character she's kind of a prop yeah like yeah even if it's played by Tony Collette as it was in the Gwyneth Paltrow one like oh she tried her best Tony Collette tried her best but like you know there was it was giving nothing this is the thing because again so Harriet and Emma and Harriet's dynamic and that whole relationship in the book it's it's one of the most interesting changes I think Eleanor Catton makes mm. in the film. So in the book, Har- it's similar to the extent that Harriet is this sort of wealthy, but her father is unknown. So that's an instant black mark. Emma kind of takes her under her wing after Miss Taylor leaves and sort of chooses Harriet as her friend slash pet project. 
And a lot of the book is propelled by Emma repeatedly trying to set Harriet up with people and it going wrong. And Knightley keeps telling her like, essentially Harriet is beneath you and you're, you've got like, you're in over your head and you don't, you're deluded about who Harriet is. And that's his whole issue with Robert Martin which mm. is the, the, the person Harriet is initially in love with, the one who Knightley is rooting for her to marry and who Emma thinks is below her. And at the end of the book, when everything's all resolved, Harriet and Robert Martin do end up married. But the resolution to Emma and Harriet's dynamic is really interesting because in the book, it's not they're not the Lizzie and Jane or even like the Lizzie and Charlotte of Emma. It's The resolution is that Emma kind of, it's like, oh yeah, Knightley was right. I do need to get over her. And just, it's it's kind of implied that they grow apart and then mm. Emma actually ends up re- sort of replacing her with Jane Fairfax. That's actually what happens in the book is that in the last few chapters, it's like, oh, Emma's new best friend is Jane Fairfax and she's on Emma's level. It's basically the implication. And I think it comes back to the kind of heat of Jane Austen's writing because it's not, it's not in a preachy way. Like you don't get the sense that Jane Austen thinks it's this is what's right, but it's the sense that this is what's realistic, which yeah. I think is yeah, it's an important distinction because she's probably correct. But the film, they are probably almost, if not as important, a relationship as Emma Knightley, and they kind of get an emotional climax that comes even after Eleanor Knightley does, which is they're making up. So I want to know what you think of that scene because that was really cool for me. That's an interesting disparity. I think it was a very smart choice, I think, for Jane Austen to have Emma sort of let Harriet go and like, you Mm -hmm. know, just so-called move on to Jane Fairfax because I think... I don't know, like just reading the book, the point that Austin was clearly trying to make was that, Emma, you need to stop fucking around and messing up people's lives just because you can. Yeah. Just because they're going to listen to you no matter what you say because you are in that position above them. So I think it was a good lesson because she can't do that. Like whatever Emma did with Harriet, she can't do that with Jane Fairfax because throughout the whole novel, it's emphasized that Jane Fairfax and Emma are like on the same level. Like they should be friends. Like they should be you know companions or whatever so like Emma resents that because then that takes it's not only about Jane being accomplished or superior or whatever it is it's also about the fact that Emma is being told like you need to give up this need to control people around you yeah absolutely and I think it also ties into what what I think a lot of people don't necessarily grasp in adaptations when they're adapting Austin is that one of Austin's sort of recurring themes is social mobility and class dynamics but not not in a kind of activist way I want to say so she's not like promoting or talking against it she's exploring the reality of how social strata work and Mm. I think it's really interesting in Emma because I think almost the point that gets made is like you know it's the novel opens with describing how pretty and rich and talented and rich Emma is (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, she's never had, it says she's never had cause to vex her. Like, she's she's privileged is basically what Jane Austen is saying. She's like the yeah. epitome of privilege in her little village. And what ends up happening is, it's interesting, a lot of Emma's kind of misguided decisions, because I think she's so ensconced in her own privilege, she doesn't realise how much it cushions her. So all mm. the suitors she's letting down, it just doesn't strike her that I think 
social climbing could be a concern because she doesn't need to climb any higher. Like she is yeah. as high as it gets. And yeah, she's the, the shit in Highbury, and she knows exactly. It. <laughs> yeah, and I think I don't think Austin's point with Emma eventually letting Harriet go. I don't think it's supposed to be like fuck the pause. Um, which yeah. can kind of come off as. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, I think what it's saying is that Emma doesn't understand that the kind of the the choice and the desirability that she has is afforded to her in large part because of her wealth and because of her privilege, and it's a yeah. that Harriet doesn't have. And, and, that, and the consequences yeah. are different for the both of them because of their class and their social position. Exactly. And I think what like Knightley's role in being the skeptic is that he he's much cannier. He he kind of knows that that's a big role Knightley plays in the book is he kind of knows what's going on in a way that Emma sort of has her head in the clouds about. He is much more alert to the way mm. the real world works. Initially reading it, it can be a bit hard to swallow. Knightley comes off as kind of a dick by modern standards <laughs> in how he describes Harriet. But I, I don't think Austin's trying to write him as, like, being a classist prick, necessarily. I think she's writing him as a realist who sort of yeah. understands that Harriet is not going to be accepted by the social tier that Emma believes she's in. And again, it's not that Emma is pulling her there because she's got this altruistic motive of, like, anyone can be on my level. It's because she's <laughs> so upset that she's lost her friend that she's like, I need my new pet project. And she wants yeah. Harriet to be that project. So she refuses to accept that she isn't. And I think it's interesting yes. because the film doesn't shy away from that. But the climax of that is actually Emma realizing that she was wrong about Harriet's parentage. Because there is the reveal in the book that, oh, Harriet's mm. parent is a is a tradesman. So he, he's not gentry. He's not like he's not socially on the same level. And in yeah. the book, it's kind of like a, oh, Knightley was right, dodged a bullet there. But <laughs> In the film, it's it's actually like that's Emma's sort of that's the moment she really shows a change of heart, which is up to this point she's like, oh, your dad's definitely a noble. It's it's all fine, but then there's no question, yeah, no, yeah. And whereas with this, she kind of accepts it, and she invites him, she, she invites Harry to bring her father to the house, and that's like their big moment of reconciliation. And mm. there's not really any emphasis placed on Emma and Jane Fairfax's relationship beyond Jane Fairfax kind of being a, a sort of foil to Emma that whose presence annoys her and I think yeah going back a to, foil me, to so, Emma in Emma's perspective and no one else's <laughs> exactly pretty much yeah. pretty much it's like she's the one person who I think can make Emma feel threatened which is why she's interesting and I mean also on a on my sort of more like gremlin brain level she is there to provide a lot of moments for emma to be like jealous <laughs> on which which is so fun it's just so because you get a lot of obviously like broody johnny flynn but oh it's it's just so much fun when when you see sort of the the oh no moments when emma like realizes everyone thinks it's there's in something the eyes like once it's again so ATJ's eyes like it's fantastic because like, they came to serve you know yeah i think other period dramas might have had some like dramatic moment where she's sort of like running breathlessly off into the side they don't do that until it's like the very last moment it's it's just her sort of like you can see her like realizing things on screen <laughs> and it's it's so fun and then obviously talking of like suitors oh i have to i have to talk about 
about Josh O'Connor in this We movie. have to, we have to. Oh my God. So, Academy Award, Grammy, oh Emmy, Tony. <laughs> yeah, just give him the EGOT. So recent Golden Globe winner, Josh O'Connor, best known for playing Prince Charles in The Crown, brings that adorable, punchable face to Mr. Elton. Not Mr. What Elton. What a genius performance. Oh, it's fantastic like I what don't a genius know. performance he plays Ugh. the obnoxious like asshole so well because it's... he genuinely believes like yes i yeah. am better than everyone he, and i deserve the, thing. the best i think I, so many I, again the the only equivalent character in like just obnoxiousness is obviously mr collins pride and prejudice and i think i haven't really <laughs> seen a, a collins performance that i'm like sold on because i think it's so easy to just kind of like Everyone knows he's obnoxious, so they're just like, how can I play obnoxious? Josh O'Connor just goes in on this guy's mind, and he's, I am going to be someone who believes he is the best in the world, and then just play him, like, completely ham, and it's so good. It's, they I don't know how they, they finished They very film. easily cast yeah. someone who just kind of, like, looks awkward, yeah, but they didn't. It, they cast someone yeah. who, like, you know, he's tall, like, he's pretty good looking. Like, when he's yeah, like, this is the listen. thing, he fits, he fits in a period. Like, he, I think it's easy to assume that because he's his, he's probably one of the funniest characters in the film. Because what I was saying is, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they finished this film because I don't know how anyone got through a take with him without just crying with laughter. Because, like, in that scene where appears, he's just like, and in thy sight. <laughs> God. like every every scene every scene he has just cracked me up and it's it's so brilliant yeah his his preaching is hysterical his him making moves on emma it's hysterical the scene when they're all at dinner and he accidentally mentions the snow and triggers everyone is hysterical it's so good and i think it's there a was a moment to the casting, where, like, yeah. Um, there, because there is like a big deal about how oh, Knightley and Churchill, like they have such great estates and da da da. So like there is that one scene, that dinner scene with the snow, where Elton says, "Oh yeah, like I heard, like it's you know it's the finest residence in all of Anscombe or something," and then he realizes, "Oh wait, shit, I just said that like ten minutes ago." Yeah, like, it's and so it's, good. It's, it's this one moment where the audience. And him both realized, like, <laughs> wow, I'm dumb. Like, I have nothing to offer intellectually or, I like, emotionally. Observation. And he and just, like... So good. <laughs> the other character who I was just not expecting to even register on my radar is Augusta Elton. I, who is his uh, wife? <laughs> I was... Okay, this was probably, like, the biggest pleasant surprise for me because all of the Augusta Eltons in the previous Emmas were pretty much no one's. The they thing. were just there they yeah, didn't actually do anything they just so said their lines weird. and left yeah and it's like, honestly it's the same in the book like, Augusta Elton in the book there's some things in Austin where because it's so focused on like social minutiae it's very easy for some things to just not land and I think Augusta Elton is one of them because we're supposed to think about how like obnoxious and like upstart she is and a lot of it I kind of just read as Emma being prejudiced and a bit territorial over Knightley because it's like she's fine. She, nothing she does seems that offensive. And then, oh my God. <laughs> you get Tanya Reynolds swatting oh in God. in yeah. her ruffles with and her fear of being over-trimmed. And it's oh. so delicious. Yeah, she just appeared on screen. And for a moment I was like, what? And then it was just fantastic. She took this absolute nothing character in the book and it just 
And she and Josh O'Connor together was just on some other level. There's this one shot of them, which is I I like took a screenshot as I was rewatching this film, and I was just like, I put it everywhere. I was like, I sent it to Mel, I sent it to my friend Sarah, I put it on Twitter because I was like, I I'm obsessed with this one shot of them going to Highbury for tea. And it's just the shot of them both like having their tea and they both just got the the most, they, they're dressed bizarrely. They've got these like insane expressions on their faces. They're probably two of the funniest characters in the film. And I was like, I had to just stop and like bow before the actors and the casting director. Cause I'm like, they've taken some of the most forgettable parts of the book and just made them this standout comedic performance, which is they so really fantastic. They really make an impression, yeah. They they know how to, like, stick in your brain. There's such a, um, that one, that first scene where they come to Highbury for tea, and, like, the first two or three lines are totally normal, like, stuff you say at tea, like, oh, this house is so like my brother's, and, like, everything's normal. And then a switch just flips, and she's like, yes, I'm really quite struck with the lightness. Like, don't you think? Like-? And she, like, just goes off, and, like, oh, no, Emma's father so is just like, what the... F-? Like, the switch that she flips. Tanya Reynolds is so skilled at being completely normal one second, and then absolutely batshit crazy the next. Like, and it's, you it's blink, so and it's good. like, oh my god, who the fuck? Like... And I think it's especially good because I think she knows we're expecting her to be weird, especially because, like, again, coming right off the tail of sex education when her whole character <laughs> is just being the weird girl. And so she kind of lures you in with this false sense of security when it's like when you're kind of waiting for, like, when is this going to get weird? And then suddenly it does. And again, speaking of Emma's father and his reaction, they cast Bill Nye, who I adore. I knew I was going to love him the second I saw he was cast. But that I was kind of a left field casting to yeah, me. I mean, because like I don't I don't know, just like in the previous Emma's, you don't really see Mr. Woodhouse do a lot. Yeah, which is actually something I thought was really interesting. And I think it comes back to how energetic an adaptation this is. And I think it's a really yeah. interesting choice because you read the book and you don't necessarily think of this as being a very like vivacious story. It's very like Emma, I guess, is. But I think night like Mr. Woodhouse, he's got this. He's got the same kind of curse, I think, the Bennetts, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett have, where they, mm. they seem so set in your mind that ultimately every performance is almost always the same. Moaning, like I, just moaning. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just him moaning in the same way it's just Mrs. Bennett like being hysterical. And so like, you know, I think you can see one and enjoy it, and then after that it doesn't do anything for you. But this, yeah. they they keep that he's a hypochondriac and they keep this very kind of like paranoid air. But Bill Nye, who also, by the way, had not read the book. I didn't think he'd read any Austin before he was in this adaptation. I remember him saying that in an interview. What? Yeah, and it's so I funny. think that played out, that played yeah. out well in his favor for Emma, though, because he, yeah. he infuses so much physicality in the role of Mr. Woodhouse that you cannot picture it without him, like, you know, strutting about and, like, swerving here and there. Like, you can't picture the lines anymore without him doing that yeah because in the book he's basically a completely sedentary character like he doesn't move at all yeah he doesn't move he's a he's like a hypochondriac to the extent that he believes like getting up and doing like and walking from here to there is gonna like kill him in this that kind of paranoia and hypochondriac tendency like manifests this like manic energy kind of so he's like jumping down the stairs he's like racing from here to there he's like paranoid he can't he's like still. sprinting into the room like is Harriet alive? So, like what's happened yeah in that chaos like harriet scene it's just like the icing on the cake and i think also because bill nye is just one of the most i think inherently like endearing actors it actually really sells in a in quite 
short amount of time, it really sells the bond between Emma and her father Mm. in a way that makes it more touching. Because I think a lot of the other adaptations, you get to this whole climax where Emma and Knightley are finally together, but he's just kind of like the the last problem to solve. It's like, oh, but I can't leave my hypochondriac father. Whereas in this, there's actually a really nice moment where he's doing his whole like thing about being just difficult and com- constantly complaining about this, that, this, that. And she and she just really affectionately turns to Knightley and says, how could I ever leave him? And you actually really believe it because you do find yourself really endeared to this character. Yeah, and I think it's I th- a great choice. I think it's the thing that we said again about like showing and not telling. Like there's not... It's not that people are constantly like, oh, Emma, you and your father are so close. Or like, oh, you know, your daughter, Emma, is such a good daughter. Like, nobody's actually <laughs> saying that. But you see it on screen. Yeah. You don't have to be told to know that these two are close. When Isabel, when Emma's sister leaves and Emma, like, has that moment where she, like, notices her father being emotional. And she's like, oh, papa, like, you know, yeah. and they have that really sweet moment. Like, you don't have to be told that yeah they're close they love yeah, each other so and the much thing is you completely buy it for all emma comes off as a bitch like she her her moments of tenderness come out when she's with her father and like in a later scene when she's really heartbroken he comes and comforts her and you and you just buy it straight away there is a very interesting display especially for the wood houses in this film about how their actions and their words are used and how they match up or don't match up like we we were talking about how Emma she uses words and language as a weapon almost like that's her shield that's her weapon that's like the main thing she relies on to like exercise her power and like her influence but then there's also the converse of her actions which like she only uses those for like moments of genuine genuine like emotion right of her going to robert (laughs) martin and she literally has to climb the hill of her own shame (laughs) and like her own remorse so good and and it's even funnier because it's it's the second it's she literally has to go on this little apology tour back to back (laughs) first yeah like when she goes to apologize to debates at the Bates house she literally again has to climb the stairs <laughs> yeah. of her own shape like fuck I made this molehill and, you know I made this it's, mountain of this molehill and now I gotta climb it and like fix it <laughs> it's so good and yeah again Miss Bates it's oh, it's Miranda Hart again it's Miranda like, Hart it's Miranda Hart like what is there to say of course Miranda Hart is playing Miss Bates it's great but yeah it's it's this sort of literal apology tour Emma's forced to go on. And I think what I love about it is Anya Taylor-Joy still kind of keeps, like, you can tell Emma's not having a good time. Emma's not going there like, oh, I'm, I must be absolved. Like, she's sort of like, you get the sense that she's like, I guess this is the right thing to do and I should do it. But it's not like it's her being It's also interesting an that those scenes, the scenes where she, you know, is using her actions in a genuine way to show that she's taking this seriously and that she's aware of the consequences now. Those are the scenes in which she speaks the least. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that's another really interesting like way of engaging with the text because this is a thing you notice a lot in Austin. One of the things, uh, the motifs that comes up a lot in Austin is obviously letters. And I think one of the reasons that like letters, so you've got Darcy reveals his tragic backstory in a letter, like Wentworth declares his love in a letter, all of this stuff. Mm. The reason they're so important is because a lot of the themes in Austin are like the conversations characters can have in social circumstances. 
a lot of the times they are very much either repressing the truth or just lying like a lot of the, the lying and the more conniving characters are the most sort of charming yes. and verbose ones yeah because yeah and it's a lot about how society and social interaction like breeds that kind of shallowness or two-facedness yeah and- that's used to great effect in emma too because most yeah. of the letter writing in the book comes from frank churchill mm. And he is the biggest rat, like, okay. So okay, yes, it's, it's, in the book, it's pretty clear, like, he doesn't actually know what he's doing. He's just, it's not yeah, that he wants to, you know, he doesn't have ill will towards anyone. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. It's just no, that he's a fucking he's not, idiot, he's not, like, right? a slime ball in the way that, like, Wickham is. No, like, he's just, he's, he's just an idiot. Like He's an idiot who, like, yeah, he's an idiot. He doesn't, like, want to hurt other people he just doesn't care about anyone as much as he cares about himself and I think that comes across and it's like sort of the polar opposite to Knightley who's so like dutiful and but I think it's it's a great use of dialogue and non-dialogue and Emma because if if the point is that so much of speech and conversation and all like spoken words can be like fake and meaningless Emma is at the top of her little society so of course she's one of the most verbose characters and all the like talking that goes on. She can yeah. just spout a lot of bullshit. And when she doesn't speak, it's the most earnest. And like, now you say it, I'm like, that's why one of the reasons it hits so hard that probably the most explicitly romantic scene between Emma and Knightley, which of course needs its own segment, <laughs> is the dance scene. Which... Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> where do we begin oh, where God. to start I, don't, I need to like do some deep breathing because every time I've watched this movie since the cinema like it's taken me about an hour longer than it should have because when this scene happens I pause about 10 times to like calm rewind. myself yeah and like rewind and then calm myself like sometimes so, I'll be watching yeah. it and like the scene will end and I'll be like no I didn't like watch it close enough <laughs> I know. even though yeah. I was doing nothing else <laughs> And I'll just rewind it again. It's like it's, what an excellent dance. What an oh, excellent dance. So dance scenes. Let's talk about dance scenes briefly. So period dramas are gonna have dance scenes. It's sort of it's a staple of the genre of the trope. Understandable because it's one of the things you can do that like you that don't work as well in like Socially modern touching. Socially acceptable touching. Exactly. Socially acceptable touching is like hits the nail on the head. It's like the moment when in the super rep- well, I have like thoughts about how repressed people think this era was. But anyway, that's a separate conversation. But like more repressed than now, sexually repressed than now. And then the, you know, they can't like hold hands publicly and whatnot. And suddenly this dancing comes along. And you know, there's there's some Austin books that have like like most Austin books have balls. The balls don't necessarily equate to dance scenes, but this Emma's no different. There's a ball, and actually in the book, the most significant dance that happens probably isn't even Emma Knightley's. It's when Harriet is snubbed by Mr. Elton, Elton yeah. and then Knightley swoops in to rescue her. And then in the film, they put a lot of emphasis on what happens next, which is Emma's, like, she has one of her moments of softness. She's really touched by Knightley's actions. And then she and Knightley share this kind of point. It's another one of, like, my favourite scenes, which is them kind of gravitating towards each other in the corner of a party, which is already, like, (laughs) god-tier content for me. Or Um, if we're going by Austin's description, how Emma invited him with her irresistible eyes. (laughs) 
I oh my god it's one of those things where you, you read the book and you're like I cannot believe I am reading this like this is, is like, this fan fiction literally <laughs> I'm like Jane like excuse me it's oh it's okay yeah so I'm already at this point in the cinema like setting the scene it's like suddenly I know what's coming and I know in the cinema this is the point when I went from being like this is a fun film to like my friends are like really alarmed because I'm like leaning forward in my seat drooling basically <laughs> and then there's the famous line which again in the book comes off as like it can come off as a bit weird in the film like it is like oh it's good when she's we're not so much brother and sister that <laughs> it would be like inappropriate for us to dance and you're like oh shit Oh shit! And then, oh, I love. Okay, I actually love. Like, I mean, in the in the film, like jo- Johnny Flynn's nightly is kind of like, oh no, indeed. Like, it's a very okay. Pardon, pardon this reference, but it's a very life with Derek. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, we're not. It's like oh, a very God. wry sort of delivery. But in the book, nightly is like brother and sister. No, indeed. Like he's like. <laughs> He's a little like scandalized. Oh my god, why would you say that? (laughs) It's quite I mean, I kind of love I do love that like Clueless took that one line and was like, yes, like, yes, please more of it. Obsessed with how Clueless did that. But yeah, and this one it's it's this little banterous moment. And then and again, I've seen the dance scene. The dance scene when I read the book in Emma, it was like, okay, cool, they're dancing. It's fine. And then I've There's seen nothing. like, it yeah, was just it's like, okay, and they like, and then next they chapter. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's, it's, and it's like, it's not like they don't get good romantic content, but the dance scene in the book, it's not really part of it. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. And then like the Romola Garay and like Johnny Lee Miller, they dance and it's, it was really unmemorable. Like, I know it happened, but like, I have like my list of like dance scenes from period dramas that like stick out and like, not one of them, very forgettable, no, but no. this one. Cool. Okay, so Autumn DeWild came to fucking slay. She came yeah. ready to murder us all this, with yeah. like the lighting and the music and the close-ups and like you can the gloveless tell. hands. Oh yeah, I think so often with dance scenes, they're so easy to make flashy. Like there's other dance scenes I think of where I think the directors and everyone knows they're like the set piece scenes. So people go in on like, here's the fancy choreography. Here's the big open ballroom. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. Like, this, this is, is going to be like 30% of our trailer, guys. Like, making Yeah, it. literally. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking of like, it, and it goes to the extent of like Disney Cinderella. And I'm like, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's fun. I think it's very enjoyable to watch. But what this does, this is like the, the word that was like running through my head is just intimacy in like a hundred different ways. Did. It actually did take your breath away. It did. I was, well, if if you couldn't tell by the fact that, like, last time I watched this film, I spent about three hours texting you about this one scene because I couldn't, (laughs) like, recover enough to keep watching. So many photos and videos. So Yeah, it was just, I think, poor Sarah's entire, like, she was asleep and she just woke up to, like, about, like, 12 just, like, blurred shots of me, like, crying into my selfie camera because I was like, I can't, I don't know how to process this okay I'm trying to like formulate coherent thought and this is this is me like thinking about it second hand so like imagine the state I am in when I'm watching this there's a very it's actually a very special achievement when you're watching two people dance like that and mm. you feel like the tightening in your chest and like your breath is coming out short yeah that is really like kudos to the actors and the directors for creating like yeah making like not just a dance scene making any kind of cinema that 
physically evocative yeah. is really hard. And I think, I think it like, probably Pride and serves, Prejudice yeah. did accomplish that too. Like the 2005 Pride and Prejudice dance scene, like it did that. But honestly, Emma okay, did you know, it this, with this, like everybody yeah, else this still in my, the room. This is my controversial opinion, which has here and only been heard by like one other person before, which is I think this surpassed the Pride and Prejudice dance scene. Yes. By I agree. Like, a lot. Yeah. The reason being Pride and Prejudice, great dance scene, but that's like the peak of what I mean about like, they went into this being like, this is a set piece. Like you could tell that yes, I'm yes. sure that that is the one that the director had on his mood board. And he's like, we're going to make <laughs> it seem like they're the only two people in the world. because We're going to literally get rid of everyone else. From this scene. I can't believe you call this storyboard a mood board. <laughs> this film, like this dance scene works to me on like an insane level because they they go the opposite direction. It's a very like claustrophobic scene almost to the extent that even as the music starts, you can hear, you can hear like Elton's like having an argument yeah. into the opening Stop of the music. embarrassing yourself. It's so funny, yeah, because like it starts and in most period dramas, it's like the sacred, like the opening bars have started and like it is their moment now. And it's like, no, you can hear them having a domestic over the opening and the choreography. This is something I've been like thinking about a lot in conjunction with the music is the choreography isn't just like look how like pretty it is and like they're touching it's the the part that got me was when they get bumped into because the whole thing yeah. starts and then like basically the choreography is they keep like stepping together and stepping apart and you can tell with each each time they step together you're like that you can see the realization mounting in in their expressions and you can see yeah. both of them having that oh shit moment <laughs> to the point where oh in like mid choreography the music's still going and they they are suddenly both just like completely like frozen in the moment looking at each other and then suddenly the other dance- they get clotheslined <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah they get like bodied and in the moment it's fantastic because they're like oh my god they're so like and I think that to me, that just hit differently for me as a way of like, because it's not just that they, they're they lost in each other. It's not just that they, for a moment they're the only people in the world. It's like for a moment they feel like they're the only people in the world and then the world bumps into them and then they're suddenly like, oh shit, like, oh my God, what's happening? You um, feel it as an audience member too. Like you feel a bit jarred yourself. Yeah. Because you and were think, like getting absorbed in it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird because this this had me, and I, I think it probably served this scene especially well that Autumn DeWell's background is directing music videos. And I think that obviously is, it? is like, yes. So I have a friend, Kate, who is a massive Florence and Florence Welch, Florence and the Machine fan. And so Autumn DeWilde, this was her first feature film and her background is primarily as a photographer and as a music video director. And I think in this scene especially, that really comes out because you can see that she really understands the interplay between like sound and visuals and how that works Mm. with storytelling. Because like I'm, as much as I like consider myself a film buff, I'm a bit of a noob. I don't have any technical grounding. So I don't normally pay attention to things like sound editing. But in this, it really stands out to me because it comes back to this kind of very deliberate claustrophobia this dance scene has. Where you can just the sound of their clothes like brushing against each other. I, I heard this pointed out, but you can hear their clothes brushing against each other over the music you kind of hear like the floor creaking and it creates this sense of like hyper awareness where it feels the most kind of 
sensory and like realistic scene in the movie where everything else has this air of like very polished. It's very like open English countryside. Everything's these bright colors. And in this dance scene, it's not like this big explosive set piece. It gets really intimate and you get the sense of how physically close these people are, but also like how overwhelming it is. And I think it ends in, again, it ends in the place that it does like my favorite period drama trope when it like ends with that that touch that's like way too intimate to happen out of the context of a dance scene where his like hands on her waist and you can hear the rustle of fabric as it moves and you can kind of hear like their hands like crossing over each yeah. other. And you it, can know, and it's so it, intimate. It's so intimate. And it's like every time I watch this scene, like I start to have a heart attack because it's like, oh my God. It's actually like really underrated genius like because it's such an it's such an accurate representation of what real life looks and feels like like when you're in a moment like in a social setting and something big is happening but you know the group is still moving along with the social setting it's this is what happens like all these tiny things get amplified and it feels like it's only to you like all of a sudden this person's voice sounds different or like this certain touch feels different or like even the way your shirt is sitting on your body feels different like that was what Autumn DeWalt managed to do with this one scene it's fantastic and what I especially love about it is that this it feels earned not just in the context of like the love interest's dancing and it's earned but also like in visuals of how the relationship pans out like I'm saying every time there's a party scene where they're both at we see them like pulling away from everyone else to like have their little aside and this is suddenly like the, the most intimate version of that where everyone starts to encroach and I think it's the choreography is so clever especially that like when everyone like bumps into them because this goes from the moment, it's like the watershed moment of them kind of realizing within the little bubble of like the Emma and Knightley dynamic, what their feelings really are. And then immediately the next scene is the Knightley is destroyed, Harriet, <laughs> like screaming sequence, which is when everything goes to absolute chaos. And like, you know, like he thinks that she's in love with Elton and uh, Churchill, Churchill. Churchill, yeah, with Churchill. And she thinks, that he's in love with Jane Fairfax and Harriet's in love with Knightley and <laughs> Emma thinks Harriet. It's, it's when everything goes to like absolute like <laughs> insanity. And I just think like the more I like, because I've watched this, like I've, I've watched the movie a lot. I had like, there was a period of time when I had like just the raw footage of this dance scene, like just on my laptop. And it would just like, it's like my like bedtime story. It's like every night. <laughs> two weeks straight was just like looping this I will I will neither admit nor deny <laughs> doing the same but like it's, yeah, it's a possibility it. it's a possible yeah and I'm like it's it's just so fantastic because it's I think it it takes a it's a very intelligent directorial and like writing move to not get carried away in the prospect of how pretty can I make this because it's a very pretty film it's aesthetically very very nice to look at like you can kind of see the gift sets being made as you watch yeah. but yeah and in a, in a way like don't get me wrong very cinematic like the lighting is gorgeous you know there's there's some like great shots but like there's there's a a very very apparent level of attention to detail like I've read in some of the behind the scenes interviews they were Orton DeWell talking about how she really wanted 
it to be that Emma Knightley were the only ones whose bare hands were touching because Emma wouldn't be wearing her gloves. And they they didn't just do it, like they went through the process of talking to their like historical advisor about how etiquette works and saying like, oh, well, maybe if it happened after the characters ate, she'd have her gloves off. And if they danced immediately after that, she wouldn't have put the gloves back on yet so they could do that. And you can, you can feel that level of attention to detail. And I think, mm. yeah, and I think it's very hard to create that sense of, we talked about the sense of like being there, there's like immediacy and like tangibility to a scene, especially when it's in like a period drama and especially one that's as sort of stylized as this is in a lot of ways. Yeah, because a lot, it's of, a lot time, of it's yeah. a lot of tension. It's not just a it's not just a feel good like ooh you know juicy. Yeah. it's a lot of dramatic tension, and they do that by reminding the audience of like the stakes, which is one the entire village around them while they're dancing. yeah. So like, like this like, is all literally... happening in the middle of everyone. In the same two, shot, there you are see those... Harry... Yeah, you see yeah. There, there, there's also Harriet. Yes, there's like the Herod and Knightley. There's like even the Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. Uh, no, sorry, Frank Churchill and Emma. Like they do yeah. have a moment too. And yeah, and it's, it's all going on. And they're all like, it's physically around them and like bumping into them. And I like, it's not just like a fantastic scene in terms of like chemistry, but it's a very powerful like storytelling vehicle in the context of the film, which I think is really hard to pull off. Um, it is for a and three, yeah, for like less than three minute dancing. Yeah, it's and crazy. like honestly, I was I've been trying to think of like other like sort of quote unquote like iconic dancing specifically in period dramas. I'm like I don't think I can think of one that's like as smart as this, but also as quite like physically breathtaking as this in the sense of literally like oh my god, my breath is being taken away. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think I can either. Like, this has been pretty much it ever since I saw it. And yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what else comes close. Exactly. And it's it's an achievement because it's such a staple of the genre. Like, pretty much every period drama is going to do the dance scene. It's like in the book, it, it all happens within this one village and basically mm-hmm. between two or three houses. And I think it's very easy to other adaptations take that very literally but they kind of lose the because you're supposed to understand how empowered Emma is within this sphere and I think when you make it look so like quaint it all feels a bit toothless whereas in this again I'm not very like musically literate but the score which by the way composed by Isabel Waller-Bridge who obviously composed the score for her sister's show Fleabag so yeah also kudos because this show now this film has a female obviously star but also director and screenwriter and composer which is very cool um, and costume designer and costume designer <laughs> and yeah de- oh my god there's yeah. actually a lot of women there's a yeah. lot of women. which which shows that's that's another thing i want to come back to but like yeah the score one of the motifs you notice is the very first note of music that almost before the screen comes on is this wind up noise of like clockwork mm. And that's a motif that continues throughout. And it creates this backdrop of where Emma is kind of like, she's in charge of this very neat little clockwork world. And if you listen to the music, you can hear like as that spurs out of control as Emma's life does. And it uses like the, the music and the aesthetics. Like the first scene is her, like she's about to like pick this flower and she's like, no, no, not that one, that one. It's even the choice of, the- of a greenhouse which is not in the novel even the choice yeah. of like, a greenhouse that is just all emma's like her world to like 
design and curate and that's what she is Absolutely. she's a curator and it's a very it's a very like telling choice because I think a lot of times when people especially when like American directors go with period dramas not just American but like non-English directors there's this very romantic and like excited notion of like the English countryside where everyone's yeah. immediately like I'm gonna get fields. so many shots of like grass and water. literally it's like look at the hills look at the hills like um <laughs> and for this one to like I mean and we get that but also it's the, the greenhouse is like this very like cultivated Emma environment and like a lot of it like aesthetically kind of it, it, it it's very like frothy looking but in a very like manicured and deliberate way and then you can Mm. see Emma being sort of visually thrown off when things aren't like that so you know Harriet with with, like the flower suddenly like because on when you see Harriet and the girls at that like orphanage or whatever out they're in this very regimented like like handmaid's tail uniforms basically (laughs) these like red capes marching around and it's all very regimented and there's this like clockwork sound and the, the kind of emotional beats and Emma's character development moments all happen through like either visual or audible dishevelment you know elf uh churchill elton churchill which one is the priest i'm like losing my mind now. elton 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 yeah <laughs> yeah josh o'connor elton when he makes his move on her in the carriage he's like literally i'm sorry like, can we, that part her. where he like unties his cloak <laughs> describe it but it's like it's I just like transcended like the earthly plane (laughs) at that scene it's hysterical and I think so much of the tension is created but because they create this very manicured heightened it's it's I think this is the other thing to know it's a very stylized film to watch like you watch it and you're like this isn't like realistic everything's just a bit exaggerated all the Mm. men's collars are like just a bit too high like they're sort of like even for historical yeah. accuracy, they're all a bit too like an yeah, inch or two too high. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They take it like they do so they go like historically accurate to the degree that they were like I I like I read interviews where they were like we wanted to like shake the idea that Regency clothes were all like pastels and soft and they actually wore like bright colours and like, okay, they take that. But then they turn it up, so that's how you get these like this like handmaid's tail regiment going around or then like the, the, when Harriet dresses up in the portrait it's like this bizarre like she's in like dresses and <laughs> and it's just it's so weird it's so funny but like it's that's what Emma's world that she controls is and that's how they make it they make Highbury interesting is you kind of get how like farcical it is and <laughs> I'm sorry all I, all I can see in my head is Elton untying his cloak <laughs> with those eyes oh my gosh and that's... Emma's just like what the fuck? yeah like I know Josh O'Connor got his golden globe for Charles but but man he, he really it's... deserved it for this <laughs> honestly like it's just it's just gold after gold but what I, what I love is that all the sort of the moments when you feel Emma like her control slipping is when the film gets gets sort of not grittier exactly but gets more real which is again the dance scene it's not like this very it's not in you know it's not like the Bridgerton kind where there's like fireworks and they're in some like fancy lawn it's very like crowded room yeah people bumping into each other or like (laughs) yeah that's a very like fancy like oh this is a set piece like look at us dance whereas this is 
because it's an emotional turning point for Emma. And so it's not this like manicured pretty thing. It's this, oh shit, suddenly she's not fully in control of her own emotions and like what is happening. The absolute like best part was of the like unhinged moments was the nosebleed in the proposal scene. (laughs) Honestly, it's tough to get across the point that she's losing it more than a fucking nosebleed. Like it's so yeah, and it's one of those things that I I think Autumn DeWilde said she put it in because she used to get nosebleeds at like random situations. And she just thought it would be like a kind of funny addition to have Emma have a nosebleed at this seminal moment. And it is so fantastic because of course, of course that's right. Because Knightley isn't part of this manicured little reality. He's the one who's always like bringing her back down to earth, but in the best way. And so when they're having this, like their their proposal, on the one hand, I was like passing away because you have like Johnny Flynn tearing up with how much he loves her, and then yeah. at which point I'm about to like <laughs> die. Like, like who told I know. him to do that? The audacity of that! Oh my god! Oh oh god! But yeah, he's like tearing up, and then it's it's quite funny because she doesn't. She never actually says yes in that proposal scene. The whole scene is it's actually another one of their <laughs> arguments. It's like them like screaming at each yeah. other, and she's like but you told Harriet this and he's like no 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 that's not what I meant and they're like both sort of like kind of hysterical and then her nose is bleeding. <laughs> the part where he's like oh will you marry me and she like just starts yelling and then she's like Harriet and he turns around because he's like what Harriet's here like <laughs> it's so good and again I think he's so perfect for this role because it's you, you kind of get he has he has a little bit he brings a little bit of that kind of chaotic boyish charm to the scene in a way that works really well and he's suddenly like tripping over himself to explain this like no I was asking if she was engaged so I could get her to Robert Martin and then he's like arguing and Emma's like nose bleeding and it's like it's so them and it's kind of like I think it's fantastic that that's their like big proposal because what made them so great throughout the film is that they're not part of Emma. It's not the relationship that Emma in her like tidy little mind imagines with her perfect match and Frank Churchill. It's like, it's her best mate who's like always pushing her and like calling like the her out. one person who's always been out of her vestige of control. Exactly. And it's the most chaotic. And then... Actually, like coming to yeah. the idea of control, I think it's, it's, it's especially funny, of course, it's especially funny, but also super effective that like the nosebleed thing happened in the proposal because that is the first time that you see Emma not having control over herself, like her own body. Whenever yeah. things spiral throughout the film, you always see Emma reacting to it, but she's not actually the one who's out of control. It's things that are happening out of control around her and she's having reactions to those things. But this is the first time that her own body, like herself, is the thing that's spiraling out of control. And it's shown in the nosebleed. And it's especially perfect that her nose keeps bleeding for the whole scene. It's fantastic is the thing, right? Like she's like literally just bleeding through the handkerchief. And I think, again, it's it's such a sweet detail, but it's like she's having this nosebleed and he's the one handing her the handkerchief. And it's like, it's such a good... Testament she, like, to their dynamic. <laughs> oh god, it's so brilliant. And there's there's this very like groundedness to their relationship in that scene that I think is why why they work so well as a couple because it's it, it's a problem solving scene really. Like it starts as a proposal, but then it's like, well, now I've got to go like fix it. I'll, like I'll I'll go like speak to Robert Martin and like, oh, here's here's a handkerchief because you're bleeding. 
and then oh, and this this is the part where again like once again I melt is like after this chaos when she storms off and then you just get Knightley doing his his little like his little like fist victory thumb. smile to himself yeah his little fist his breakfast he, club moment <laughs> yeah when he's like it, it like hits him he's like wait wait she's she's like she oh wait that was a yes that was a yes in there and it's like it's the sweetest thing and and it's it's a it's a fun like parallel because the only other time we've seen her in a kind of state of like dishevelment or like sort of gross in a way is when she was like ugly crying after her fight with Knightley after Box Hill which was the only Mm. other time anyone's like moved her to like actual tears is when she's sort of angry and sad and frustrated after that and then yeah and and that only happens like outside of Highbury yeah exactly this is this is the only part within her like I think this is in her garden if I'm not mistaken it's the only part in her sphere of control where she suddenly like loses it but in a way she's happy about because the conclusion of the film which is also the conclusion of the book and this is a part of the book that was like probably the most radical is that he gives up his independence his house that he's the master of to come live with her which is just not something that happened typically in those days <sighs> and in this <laughs> oh I'm sorry. <laughs> like that is so much, isn't it? That it's, that's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And like and this scene was again like just the breathlessness where it's like it's it's such a good contrast to all these like dramatic encounters that have happened in the rest of the film where this the entire like the actual romantic fruition scene is this this like fireside chat where again they're doing like the little problem solving where he's kind of like playing along with egging on Mr. Woodhouse and then they kind of distract Mr. Woodhouse who's like sequestered himself by all these insane spire screens so he can't <laughs> see them and what then, a great visual like so that fantastic. that is honestly like genius on Eleanor Kent whoever came up with that I'm assuming it's Eleanor Kent but yeah, yeah whoever it, came up with the yeah. screens like <laughs> It's fantastic. Oh Again, it's part of this very exaggerated like imagery they have where instead of like one little fire screen, he has like he basically like creates a second like room where he's like <laughs> shut into the fire. And it's especially funny. It's also because, a very yeah. nice um, it's a very nice display of how he's signaling to them that like you can have your own space. Like, just because yeah. this is my house just because this is not your house doesn't mean like I- I'm willing to make that space for you and yeah and there's a real sweetness that comes across because it's happening because he's like he's sort of egging Knightley on being like oh don't you feel a chill about the knees and then Knightley's like playing along and it's sort of everyone kind of <laughs> when Knightley doesn't it. get it at first and Mr. Woodhouse is like so disappointed <laughs> he's like oh okay oh, and Knightley's like oh so... no wait yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there is a dress. yes yeah and then it's it's again it's like it's their final it's like their big final the two of us alone together in a corner of a room scene is them on this little couch by the fire and it's just them whispering about the future and she's saying like how can I ever leave him and yeah this this is the part where like sort of I don't have many like coherent thoughts past this point because I was kind of like just sort of like sobbing and whimpering in the cinema at this point because like it's just it's a lot it's a lot but it's just so good I think it's such a good it's, it's a very, it's a difficult impulse, I think, to resist when you've got, like, a big budget period drama to not go bigger and bigger and bigger as you get towards the end. 
And with mm. this one, it it gets more and more and more intimate. And I think it kind of it kind of closes in rather than opens out. And it's so effective. They've got this really, really sweet conversation and like the, the first kiss that happens. And it's like, it's lovely. And it's um, in I, the exact same setting that we see the first Emma Knightley scene. Yeah, and you, it's that beautiful, like, full circle, like, because the first scene is them kind of, like, sort of snarking at each other from across the room, and now it's them. And, and- even with the screen, like, in the first scene, when they're moving the screen across, Knightley moves over to her side of the room to look at the letter that Frank Churchill sent. So yeah, even it's, with the scene, it's a full circle thing. Like, it, this is the thing. It's the crazy. full circle. It's like set up this like magnetic pull through the whole movie. And it's like the final like coming home together. That's them now. Like that's the unit that exists. And they're both just so good. And I think it's very sweet because it's the first moment you see Emma kind of embracing the kind of not being fully aware I guess because even even the kiss scene that happens it's like she gives him this little peck and it's obviously her first kiss and she's like very like perplexed and he's so like fond and indulgent and then he's the one that she has that moment like, where it's like wait is this what it's supposed to be like and yeah it's the first and- time you see Emma questioning is this what things are supposed to be like because she's always decided what things are supposed to be like yeah, it's the first moment you see, so she like acts on her own impulse, but it's the first moment you see her sort of stop to evaluate, like, what what is this really? What is happening? And you just, again, Johnny Flynn, it just complete, he's, remember it's that whole- the like, tenderness. Tw- it, it's it is the, twi- the tenderness. It's the tenderness. It's, it's, you know, that whole Twitter thread that like keeps coming back about like the, the, the key to a good romance is he needs to know how to look at his love interest. Yes. It's like <laughs> that to the peak. I can't even like you just have to kind of watch it to get it but like you you can't look at it without just melting because you can just feel the affection there and I think in a film that just thrives on how sort of spiked and aesthetically like heightened it is it's such a it's such a powerful contrast to have that kind of intimacy at the end yeah Um, it hits it does and like obviously like the next scene and the final scene is the wedding so, like, what do you think of that as the closing scene of... I thought it was a very... Uh, like, once again, we're talking about that full circle thing. Because, like, the very first scene of the movie is... um, It opens soundtrack and, like, there's no dialogue at all. It's just her, you know, curating her little world in the greenhouse. So, the final scene is her stepping into, like, her new world, almost. Like, the new world she's building with Knightley. And, once again, there's no dialogue. And it's all very pristine and perfect, but she's doing it hand in hand with Knightley. Absolutely. And also, yeah, you know, designing things and pointing things out by herself. It's not just that anymore. It's an awareness that like they're going to step into this new thing together. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the other thing is that the, the, the story also started with a wedding, but that was like Emma was like, it was almost resentful of it because she felt like that was something that was taken away from her. So it was kind of, it's almost like a villain origin story. She's like, well, if this, is, if this is what's happening, like I will control all the weddings from now on. It, this, it also, yeah. honestly, that, that is a great point because it does show how her view of marriage has changed since she fell in love with Knightley. Because like, like you said, the resentment and the, the kind of like, well, you know, fuck you for fucking up all my, my plans in, in the first wedding, even though she's the one who contrived the wedding. 
And then in the middle, in the vault scene, there is that moment where she has to stand second to Mr. Elton, who just got married. Mm. And she says that line about, oh, yes, a bride must be first in company. You know, like it's almost enough to make me think of marrying. Like she still sees marriage as a status thing at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also marriage and it's also how she views her relationships with people. It's a very like transactional or like possessive type of thing where she kind of she's like you can definitely hierarchical yeah but when she gets married to nightly at the end it's it's the partnership and like again it's it's a very visual like hand in hand thing like i think the penultimate shot of the movie maybe one of the last shots is literally them holding hands it's their hands coming together and it's and i think it's an interesting choice because again austin films like adaptations a lot of them will obviously play up the romance to a much larger degree than they are in the book like they're often not as thematically central to the book as people think they are but with this one it's not just that like it it's not played off as like it's just oh the natural happy ending it's also like it's the full circle it's the thematic full circle it's not just that emma knightley have been such a central dynamic but it's also emma's whole perspective on relationships and on marriage has changed and now she's going into this not trying to just be in control of everyone all the time but like with a partner with like someone she like genuinely trusts and respects as an equal Um, yeah it's it's very it's very clearly about perspective because the film opens with her opening her eyes and it ends with her closing her eyes now hand in hand with nightly Oh, so it's very I, much, yeah, it's, I forgot it's about the a, a opening. Very physical the eyes, signaling yeah. about yeah. how her perspective has her perspective and her position has changed. And at the end, it's very much like she's she's okay going into it, not knowing exactly how it will plan out because she's okay ready to like trust Knightley, who's going into it beside her. The point isn't for her to suddenly become sort of oh her cold heart is melted yeah. and now she's sunshine and rainbows. Like she's still Emma at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's a good woman now. <laughs> And I love that it doesn't do that. Is there is a naivety about her and a, and a kind of yeah. idealisticness, and I think he kind of recognizes that for a, for a softness in a way that not a lot of people do, and they and they really bring out all the shades of each other. And I think that's why it's so successful, and I think that's why it feels earned that it's there coming together as a couple as the closest film. Because I think a lot of times it's it's a satisfying ending to the extent that I love a good romance but it's, but it's an easy one yeah yeah it's an easy one and the, the film hasn't really made it the point like the, like them falling in love isn't the point of the story but in this it is because so much of the character arc is so intrinsically linked to how their relationship to each other changes um mm. so I think it feels really earned like to close it with a wedding like there's nothing revolutionary about like ending your Austin adaptation on a wedding but it takes a lot of very standard parts of the period drama genre and like really revitalizes them in a way that it feels so fresh and new Mm. and I think that's a really difficult thing to do because it's really hard for tropes sake like there are still tropes like very much so there are still tropes but like there's a real depth and substance to it that makes you care that these tropes mm. happen in this specific order in this specific way it's just such a good film like that's my eloquent closing thought is like it's so good guys like it's just many so award <laughs> much recognition many awards that's my Literally, <laughs> that's my yeah. expert opinion so yeah if if you couldn't tell from the the tone this conversation has taken 10 out of 10 would recommend 
this is like this is in my pantheon of like all-time great films basically I love it a lot I think you can tell 10 out of 10 as in that's the number of times we recommend watching it so yeah just fantastic and I foresee us having many 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 more conversations about the undisclosed number of times Oh, at least like this. 12 more just as sweet <laughs> this was so much fun thank you for doing this so this has been Neha and Mel you can find me at Chipters on Twitter that's chapters but like chai you can find Mel at sci-fi buys you should follow for good content good tweets seven daily <laughs> there we go so this has been The Discorset a podcast about period dramas So thank you all for joining us and thank you, Mel, for gracing me with your intellectual presence and Emma-related thoughts. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to our feed and rate the episodes. I'll see you again next time.